You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Jamie. Hey, Bob. How are you? I can't complain. How are you doing? You know, I try to complain once in a while and no one listens, so I just stop. You've had that experience, too. Yeah. It's not just me. Yep. Uh, well, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Jamie Metzl, author of the book Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity, uh, which I think is a very important book, uh, raising important questions. Um, you're also a senior fellow at the Atlanta Council, uh, and you served on the National Security Council under President Clinton. And you were deputy staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a senator named Joe Biden. Yeah. So does that mean that that even as we speak, you're jockeying for a position in the new administration? I'm not. Uh, Most everybody I know is. um, And it's great because our country is in uh, is in deep trouble and we need all the great people we can get. But. I've been um, very, very busy with my work on on human genetic engineering. I'm part mm-hmm. of the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing, and our big report's coming out. And I've founded um, with other people a global social movement called One Shared World. So I'm kind of all in with the things that I'm doing, but I certainly am enormously supportive of the uh, the Biden administration, and there's a lot of work for them to do and for us all to do in supporting uh, this change that we need. Okay, so let me uh, summarize my understanding of your argument, and you can tell me if I've got it wrong. I mean, basic idea is like it or not, the age of designer babies is upon us. Uh, as as people know, uh, people are already using. Um, in vitro fertilization, uh, you know, along with selectively re-implanting uh, the eggs to screen for specific uh, genetic diseases uh, and even uh, cognitive deficiencies. Uh, people are, 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 are screening to avoid having babies uh, with Down syndrome if they choose in some cases and so on. Uh, but we're you know, starting to go beyond that and certainly will be soon and uh, have the capacity to actively, you know, enhance, uh, you know, look for genetic, what you could call genetic enhancements, although the line between, you know, preventing a pathology and an enhancement isn't always as clear cut as you might think. But in any event, uh, it, it will increasingly be possible for parents to um, at least increase the likelihood of their babies uh, having extraordinary capabilities uh, in the cognitive realm, in the physical realm, uh, in the emotional realm, um, and and select for certain personality traits and, and, and so on. And this raises uh, a lot of ethical questions. It raises policy questions at the domestic level. Uh, I think the more challenging, uh, as challenging as those are, the most challenging policy questions are probably at the international level, and you spend time on that. And it's interesting that your your background is in in national security because I think uh, way too little attention is being paid to that whole issue. So uh, so far, do I have that about right? What, yeah, what, it's, it's a pretty good uh, summary of the book. The only uh, question that I would raise is really uh, designer babies. There's so much baggage associated with that uh, with that word. Mm-hmm. So when lots of people think of designer babies, they think it's kind of like going to the mall uh, to the Build a Bear workshop, and you'd say, oh, "I'll have these buttons for the eyes, and this color full fur, and these overalls, and and, and whatever it is." And really, this is uh, it's along a, a continuum, a spectrum, and so we've already begun this journey. Um, changing the way that we make babies through in vitro fertilization, through uh, what's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or testing or selection, whatever the words are, um, that people are already using. And it's not that we're just going to jump into this kind of futurist world where people are building babies from scratch, but there's going to be a continuum Mm -hmm. uh, and that that we're going to move forward on that continuum not because every day we're going to make a decision, do I want to design her baby or not, but because we're going to want better health care. We're going to use genome sequencing to, to unlock all kinds of, uh, of secrets about what it means to be a, a human 
because they'll be very relevant and very useful in our in our lives. And over time, that's going to change the way we do all sorts of things, including healthcare, procreation, manufacturing. Um, but also, people have a, a delusion um, that we just kind of that what we are now is some kind of expression of a, of a state of nature. I mean, nature didn't immunize us. Nature didn't build cities. Nature didn't do all these things that have fundamentally transformed the way that we live. So we have to recognize how "quote unquote" unnatural our lives already are. Otherwise, we'll see even incremental additions of uh, applying technology, incremental steps forward in applying technologies as more radical than they are uh, in the context of our progression as a species. Yeah, I mean, human nature was designed by natural selections design criteria. And, you know, the, the it's not obvious that it's the, these are the morally optimal criteria. You know, the, the animal that's best at getting genes into the next generation is the kind of animal there will be. So, in a way, it's good to have the option to depart from that that design criterion. I guess the, the yeah, no, I I agree with that. I think that's that's really an important thing. First, um, that there's no good or bad in evolution. Uh, there's just being particularly well suited for a, a given environment. And second is the the nature of Darwinian evolution. The essence of random mutation is that there'll be a bunch of changes in every next generation of every species, most of them won't really matter much. Some of them will hurt you and some of them will help you. And we already, through our healthcare system and, and other ways of, uh, historically, um, have means of addressing those, uh, those copying errors. Uh, and in, when they show up as terrible, deadly genetic disorders that we think are worthy of treating. And so it, it, we have never been a species that, said, that has said, oh, well, I guess nature has an error rate and we'll just call that fate. When somebody's child is born with some terrible disease, we fight the disease to save the child. We don't say, oh, that's just, there's Darwin at, at it again. And, and that's what we're going to continue to do just with more powerful tools. Okay. So um, why don't we, well, I, I want to get to all of this. Uh, uh, I want to first, you know, touch on, uh, you know, kind of what exactly the state of our our knowledge is uh, what, what, uh, how we can expect the advance of science and technology to increase our power in this realm to do the things uh, that we that we want to do if we decide they're they're good things. Before we before we started that, I, I just want to ask uh, you. You begin the book in a way I wouldn't have necessarily predicted. Uh, describing your own experience at a place where you can have your sperm frozen and, 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 uh, and, and that being part, uh, you know, you're doing that, uh, in compliance with the advice you give other people, apparently, uh, when you, when you speak on this subject, as you say to, I guess, young adults especially, you recommend that they have their, their eggs and sperm frozen now. Right. Uh, and I, I guess that's partly because as time goes on, uh, they are, you know, you, you, they may themselves be more eggs and sperm are more likely to have uh, problems. Right. But but why elaborate on why you think that's they'll regret it if they don't? Um, the summary is because the cost of doing it is very small, but the cost of not doing it is potentially big. I certainly believe that our species is going to move toward increasingly, never completely, but increasingly having children using IVF and embryo screening and ultimately uh, genome editing of uh, pre-implanted embryos. Um, and, and if that's where we're heading for some logical reasons connected to thinking that we can do better than the, the, the error rate of nature on, it, on its own, um, people are going to want to have their sperm uh, or eggs um, stored, extracted uh, and, and frozen and stored when they're younger, just because that's safer. I mean, the, the, that the, the sperm and eggs of a 30-year-old, 35-year-old, um, uh, 40 year old have have taken on a number of mutations and risk levels uh, go up with time. And if as long as we're going to do it that way, or even think we may do it that way, why not store now? And it's certainly easier 
uh, for men than for women. For men, as I write about in the book, it's kind of like you go into the essentially the broom closet. They give you a little plastic receptacle and, and, and uh, some dirty magazines and, and, you know, depending on your whatever, you're kind of done. What, for women, what's not to like, right. Exactly, exactly. For, for women, you know, it's a surgical procedure. It's not a major surgical procedure, but every surgical procedure comes with risk and you have to, to take hormones and that's not, not, not something that's, uh, that's comfortable. But still, um, I, I just think that the, the potential benefits outweigh, in my mind, the relatively small downsides, one of which is cost. Uh, and that's why I certainly am supportive of assisted reproduction services and technologies being included in national health plans and, um, and under insurance plans. And that's certainly, that's something that happens in places like Israel and it doesn't happen here. So there are real issues. I, I, it's not that I think this is all simple and, and straightforward, um, but I do think this is where our, our species is heading. I do think that, you know, you come back 50, hundred years from now or just live long enough to see it. And we're going to be making babies very differently uh, from the way we're doing so now. Okay. Um, so we should probably say at the outset, you know, you're not saying that genes are everything. Right. Um, I mean, after all, you can look at, at two identical, genetically identical twins who've been reared apart and they're different in all kinds of ways. Um, at the same time, but, studying uh, what, what's more similar than people would assume. And people right, right. would assume that, um, two genetically, uh, two identical twins separated at birth um, are not more similar to each other than two fraternal twins raised in the same household. But on average, that's been the case in, in lots of different areas. Right. So so studying identical twins reared apart, on the one hand, establishes that there are, uh, you know, the genes are important. It's, it's one of the most important methodologies we have for studying that. At the same time, you can you can show that they're different in important ways. You, uh, so genes aren't everything. Um but uh, clearly they're important. And I, I guess in terms of, you know, uh, clearly we have to have a lot of knowledge to do to do what you're talking about, uh, knowledge about the genes. At the same time, you don't always have to understand exactly how they work, right? I mean, in principle, if you have enough data, just if you just do big data and uh, and you have enough information uh, through gene sequencing about the, the 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 genomes of different people and the traits they exhibit, you can say in a probabilistic way. I I, I assume that like okay, if your kid has this gene instead of that gene, then they have you know an eighty percent chance of being you know good at math or 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 a good sprinter or or something, right? So. You, there's a certain amount of the knowledge you need to do this stuff that you can you can get without really understanding exactly how things work, right? Yeah. No. So the two essential points there. The first is um, how can we uh, make decisions based on systems that we don't fully understand? On one hand, that's scary for people because in in our lots of places in our world we have algorithms that are making decisions about all sorts of things. And it can be very difficult and it's getting more and more difficult to understand how the algorithm is ultimately coming to a a certain conclusion. Um, But if we were to decide to say, well, the only algorithms that we'll use are algorithms that we can 100% perfectly understand and um, unpack, uh, we would be basically curtailing a big chunk of the future of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning simply because And there are complex patterns in the world that are beyond the, just the raw computing power of our brains. And, and so I think we need to, it's, it's hard for people, but this isn't just a a biology or genetics point. This is a a broader point. We're going to have to get, and we will get uh, more and more comfortable um, with building smart machine learning algorithms and using them to understand things that we, that we would have a hard time explaining without, without those machines. And that leads to the second point about predictions um, and the reason why we need this, these massive data sets of millions and hundreds of millions and, or, and billions of people's gen, uh, genetic or genotypic and life or phenotypic information 
um, is so that we can begin discerning these complex patterns. And it's, it's, it's really challenging because the same genetic pattern or similar genetic pattern in two different people may lead to a different outcome unless you look at the entirety of their system's biology, which is it's a, a, a pretty, big, uh, pretty big task. We're already in the early stages of being able to make relatively accurate genetic predictions, not across the board, but in some pretty key areas. Um, first starting, which is much easier for Mendelian disorders, single gene mutation disorders, and that's more uh, like an on-off switch. But then now we're entering the new era of, of uh, essentially polygenic, called polygenic risk scoring, but it's essentially polygenic scoring, so it doesn't have to be risk-related. And that's looking at patterns of genes. So let's say, uh, and this is possible now, you have uh, 10 embryos um, in, all, in the same uh, group of embryos from the same parents, uh, and you can roughly rank order them in a potential range of height relative to each other. And uh, there are other traits where that's, that's possible. And increasingly, we're going to be moving in that direction where it's just exactly as you said, we won't have perfect information about your ability to be a great abstract mathematician or sprinter or how tall you are or your IQ. Um, but there will be relational and directional information, and we will use that to make decisions. Mm-hmm. So assuming then that this knowledge base continues to grow, the question becomes, you know, what? Uh, how does the technology advance? Does the technology give us more and more leverage as time goes on, you know, to make use of this knowledge? I, and I gather there are a couple of things. One is that... Uh, the number of eggs you have to choose from is now, uh, in principle, much more, much greater than it, than it used to be. Uh, and then the second realm would be, of course, uh, when we get in and actually edit, edit the genes. That's a yeah. whole new kind of leverage. Yeah. So there's two points. So the first on the number of eggs, um, we, we aren't that, uh, we aren't yet there for humans. The number of eggs you have is the number of eggs you have, but in, Animal models, stem cells are already being used. Uh, so basically what you do is you take an, an adult, a differentiated cell, uh, you, you, you revert that cell to a, a stem state called an induced pluripotent stem cell. Uh, and then you uh, basically, let's say, skin cell to stem cell to egg precursor cell to egg cell. You kind of go back in time and then forward in time. And then in animal models... Um, we're able to, to create basically an unlimited number of eggs. And given that the number of human eggs is limited, um, that's actually something that's, um, that's really important and it's, it's, uh, it's very, very useful. We aren't yet there uh, in, uh, in human models, but I think that we're going to be. And what, that, what happens when we do is it increases our ability to choose because if embryo selection uh, for the near term is going to be our driver of, uh, of decision-making and will be more impactful than genome editing at, the, at least this, uh, at this early stage, the larger the set of, of embryos from which choices are being made, the more choice um, there'll be. Uh, we now have three people, the second question, three uh, people in the world that we know of who were born um, after having their um, early stage embryos genome edited by this highly unethical uh, biophysicist in, uh, in China. And we aren't ready uh, for the, the, we aren't ready for the next stage of uh, uh, genome edited um, pre-implanted uh, early stage human embryos, but we will be. And that's where our, our, our species is heading. It's not going to be a straight path. Uh, Dieter Egli and others have done great research showing that when they did CRISPR edits on uh, early stage embryos, there was uh, what they called chromosomal mayhem. Um, and, uh, and so sounds, it's, sounds uh, like a bad, sounds like a bad thing. Chromosomal mayhem is a bad thing, but, but certainly you know, the, the trajectory of these kinds of interventions, I mean, it was six years um, between when uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier um, uh, released their seminal paper on uh, CRISPR 
as a means of editing a cell, uh, not a human cell, but just a cell, um, to um, or the genome, so, uh, forgive me, the genome of a cell. Six years later, the world's first CRISPR babies uh, were born. Um, so we are moving on really an exponential rate of growth. So I've, I've really no doubt about where we're heading. And then that's why I know we're going to talk about ethics later, but that's why ethics needs, needs to be part of, of the conversation now, because this, this science is moving quickly and it's got, it has to be the ethics um, have to be woven into the process at, at every level. Okay. So um, what is, what's kind of the most uh, amazing thing that in principle parents could do now? I mean, suppose there were no ethical constraints or legal constraints, just given what we know now and without resorting to highly risky Mm -hmm. things, which I gather the the CRISPR still is. um, What kinds of selections can parents in principle be making now that that might surprise yeah, us. Yeah. So you asked two questions. I'll answer them. What's the most amazing thing that parents can do? I mean, which seems pretty incredible to me is to make a new human life through sex. I mean, that just it's <laughs> kind of mind boggling. Um, but in terms of, let's say, you wanted to apply as much science as you could safely apply. Well, um, first, uh, here are the things that you could do. You could do. Uh, the genetic analysis of each parent and their uh, this, uh, before you even get pregnant. And so that would give you some information. Then uh, you can have uh, extract the mother's eggs um, through in vitro uh, and then extract them and fertilize them with the father's sperm through uh, IVF. Then you could grow each of those pre-implanted embryos. Let's say it's 10 of them. Um, and extract a few cells from each and, and do a, um, uh, a genetic analysis to choose which of those embryos should be implanted in the mother. Um, or um, if you really want, this wouldn't, wouldn't be safe now, but this is um, the way it would happen in the future. You would take the egg, take the sperm, and take a vector for genome editing. And at the same time that the sperm was fertilizing the egg, you add in that genome editor to make probably at this stage one change. And, and there's, most people would not want to do that. Actually, nobody would want to do that now. But I can imagine in a relatively short uh, number of years, you know, some people where both uh, uh, parents are carriers of some kind of uh, genetic Mendelian uh, disorder who want to have their, uh, their own uh, biologically genetically related child might want to want to do that. So we're, we're really right at the cusp. I mean, IVF and embryo screening are huge revolutions, but we're all about uh, to, to enter an era and whether it's five years away or 10 years away, doesn't really change the historical trajectory. We're about to enter this era where we're going to begin with relatively simple edits, either of pre-implanted embryos or of egg or sperm precursor cells. And the reason why that's appealing um, is um, you, that you can have much more iteration. Like if you're screening you know, hundred million sperm cells that you've, you've edited, I mean, it may take a long time unless it's, it's automated, but there's a lot of power that, that comes with that. And so the basic point is there'll be possible interventions at every stage of the of the life cycle at the sperm and egg precursor cell, sperm and egg, embryo, fetus, and then person. Okay, and in terms of traits, in terms of uh, things I could, you know, uh, traits I could I could seek to, you know, have in in my offspring. What are the you know, the the most surprising ones that science currently permits. In other words, we have found yeah. that certain genes are correlated with a certain thing. You could test for that gene uh, in, in an embryo and make the decision accordingly. I mean, it sounds like height. Yeah, we could already do. Yeah, you could. So, so let me say, what are the things that you could do now that you want to do? 
What are the things that you could do now that you may not want to do? And what are the things that you might be able to do in the future? So the things that you could do now that you want to, that people are already starting to do is to screen out uh, deadly or dangerous single gene mutation disorders. Um, we were already doing it. Um, certainly there are all kinds of, uh, of ways that now um, chromosomal abnormalities like Down syndrome are being screened for mostly uh, now through non-invasive, non-invasive prenatal testing. And then most people in, in most parts of the world with that analysis or uh, with that prognosis are choosing to abort more in Northern Europe than the United States, but about two thirds here, uh, here in, in the United States. Um, we're moving toward a greater ability to do that kind of, of screening at an earlier stage. Um, uh, and, but I think, so those are all things that are, are happening now. Uh, there's a, there are companies like Genomic Prediction um, that are starting to provide information uh, to potential parents and their, uh, and their doctors doing um, polygenic analysis, analysis of complex genetic uh, traits. And it's really, really tricky because when you move from a world of greater certainty to a world of greater probability, but you have to make big choices like which embryo to implant, the consequences are, are pretty high. Genomic prediction um, was attacked because they, had, uh, they were providing some information about uh, people uh, who, who may have um, uh, some kind of intellectual impairments um, and they had to, to pull back initially from uh, from providing that. And so we're, we're moving into a very sensitive... In other words, not, these are not official pathologies, so to speak? Or, or... Well, I guess the, that's the really tough question. And you've mentioned earlier uh, about the line between therapies and enhancement. I mean, we have these things that we call uh, pathologies because we have some vague sense um, that there's a boundary along the spectrum of every trait that, that we have, but a lot of that is, is set in context. I mean, certainly um, there are traits uh, that are selected against now um, that um, actually w- would provide benefits in some other circumstances. There are things that we think of as absolute, but they're, they're just relative mm-hmm. um, to our, uh, to our, our culture and, and moment in time and, and history. And so I think that's what's so challenging about all this. So what got this company into trouble? Were they saying, look, here, there's an 80% chance that if you re-implant it, uh, implant this egg, then what? Then they won't be good at math? Or what? I mean, what, what were they saying think- that got them into trouble? The, the accusation essentially was you're screening people based on intelligence, even though that wasn't essentially what they were doing or what they mm-hmm. thought that they were doing. That was the accusation against them. And when every conversation that we have about this, about genetics and capacity, tends to run into trouble. I mean, there are certainly very poorly formulated expressions of this, like, like from the bell curve years ago. Um, uh, and, and even today, David Reich at, at Harvard um, and others who are talking about these issues, it's really, really sensitive. Um, and I think that's, if someone says that, that a, a company is screening for intelligence, then you know, all hell breaks loose. And that doesn't mean there shouldn't be any, any criticism mm-hmm. because people say, well, what is intelligence? Is it um, culture specific? Is it discriminatory? Uh, all of these kinds of, uh, of issues. And, and that cuts against what I think that we're discovering. And, and it's, not, it's not crazy in my view to say it is that there are genetic differences between all humans. And when groups of humans are isolated from each other for thousands or tens of thousands of years, they end up having differences, which is why people look different, why Tibetans are better suited uh, for living at altitude than most of the, of, uh, of the rest of us. But when we start screening for those things, when there's the idea um, that we can identify who is, is more or less of something, um, now, I think the, the, the specter uh, of eugenics tends to seep in and that, that motivates, activates or scares various people. Yeah, well, I mean, most of the uh, I mean, 
uh, you know, concerns about eugenics uh, aren't necessarily connected to race. And, and, and the and, and the and the you know, in other words, a certain amount of this is almost inherently controversial. Yes. And it's it's not like uh, issues of race naturally arise if a doctor looks at three eggs created by my wife and says, well, this one, you know, is more likely to do this. Um, yeah, but, but it's certainly true that that's part of the political, the historical right. backdrop right. that, that makes any discussion of genes, um, controversial. I, I take that point. The, and, and I also take the point that, um, you know, the, the knowledge, uh, this, we were talking about probabilistic knowledge. It, it sounds like in this case, uh, they're say, they, they, I guess they were saying, you know, they, they felt they could say that this gene gives you a greater chance of, uh, having, um, uh, you know, uh, a certain intellectual trait or, or maybe a few more IQ points or something. I mean, not that there are genes for IQ or anything, but still there could be those kinds of statistical well, correlations. And, yeah. And, and IQ is inherently controversial, uh, because there are all kinds of genetic analyses that are beginning to, to, you know, not entirely, but roughly directionally, uh, predict ranges of possible IQs, at very least to identify potential outliers on, on one side or the other. But that runs into the broader debate about IQ, whether IQ right. is something real, whether IQ measures something that's, uh, that's, that's relevant. So right. just, these are, we're talking about is, is human identity, but, and so everybody's yeah. a stakeholder in, in fighting that out. But, but for some purposes, these questions don't matter in, in, in the following sense. Like, whatever IQ is or isn't, and I think it's basically just a human construct that's uh, trying to capture, it's not some kind of essence that's in me somewhere. But, um, but, 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 but yeah. Maybe, I mean, I have to say, I, I'm a believer not in, in necessarily in IQ, but that there is a thing called intelligence, which is relevant to whatever skills our society or our species think is, is relevant to our, our well-being. And that it's measurable. And some people have more of it than others. And that it correlates. That if you're yeah. great at math, chances are uh, you're going to be you have a better than average chance of being great at music and being great at science. It doesn't mean it's always, it's always the case. Sure. I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm always, yeah. it's a little off topic, but I'm, I'm always um, cautious about you know, going to an uncomfortable area and say, oh, all right. So therefore there's no such thing as intelligence. It's not measurable. Oh, yeah. It's not even essential. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, ultimately it's, it's, it's a question of like, um, to what extent is it a unified thing and to what extent is it in what cases does it make more sense to talk about discrete cognitive capabilities what is the correlation among discrete yes. and and it's ultimately but there's a, there's a sense in which none of this matters and what i mean is this is if you know right now it is society is set up such that there is a correlation between what you get on your sat scores and what colleges you can get into Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's, I mean, it's not like SAT scores is like a, a, an essence of me. It's, it's a, it's a particular measurement. ACT right. scores measure something a little different. Right. Uh, but, but in any event, whatever test is being used for admission to college, parents care about it. Right. There, there is certainly going to be some kind of statistical correlation between some genes and your likelihood of doing well on, on, a, on an aptitude test like that. Leave us. We don't have to debate what you know what IQ is or SAT is, but the point is that so long as those two things are the case, some parents are going to want to use this technology, and once some parents want to use it, and it's not illegal, and some parents are using it, right away you run into these these questions. But I mean, you know, just to 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 cut to one part of the chase, like. You know, some parents are going to choose not to use it. They're, well, some parents are not going to have the financial wherewithal to use it. It'll be expensive at first. Some parents will choose not to for moral reasons. And you, so over time, and especially as, as our powers of intervention grow, you face the very real prospect of a deeply genetically stratified society, right? Where, uh, 
well, you can take it yeah. from there. Yeah, yeah. So certainly there are arms race dynamics here. Uh, and, and there are cultural differences where different societies, people in different societies will think differently about the desirability or non-desirability of using these kinds of, of technologies to guide the, the process of, of procreation. Um, and I write about this in the book. I have friends in Korea who are sending their 10 tutors a week coming to the house. Their kids are in cram schools every night after, after school. Um, and when I mentioned to them, like, well, if, if you did have this capacity to select embryos and let's say you get um, the, up to 10 additional IQ points um, based on selecting from among your 10 embryos, selecting one with the highest probability of having a higher IQ, would you do it? And for my Korean friends, it's you know, almost everybody says, obviously, who wouldn't do that? You know, people here in the United States are much more cautious. And they say, well, that, that feels unnatural. That feels wrong in, in some way. And there's no, there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, but certainly I live in New York City and you see the, the, the length to which extent to which people are doing things to give their children advantages. Um, we know that IQ, as flawed as it is, is correlated with kind of most everything that are lots of things that parents would want for their children, not just material success, but stable relationships, emotional well-being, all, all, all sorts of things that people would want tend to be correlated with, uh, with IQ. And, and exactly right. Once people start doing it, I mean, there certainly will be um, first adopters and, and people will watch them cautiously to see, well, is this something that's good? But then once people believe essentially that the error rate of procreation through science is lower than the error rate of procreation through quote unquote nature or sex, um, I think more and more people are going to want to, to take that step at first to eliminate risk. But once we've crossed that barrier, then we're going to use it for, for all of the reasons that we're, that are motivating our actions. Now we will be the same species with the same drives, just new tools that make it differently possible to realize our aspirations. Um, right. And, uh, I, I, one disclaimer, I realize, uh, we have an issue, but we should probably say is, is you're not saying IQ is entirely a product of the genes. It's just that as long as there is some significant genetic component, as long as the genetic differences, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, between me and my neighbor, uh, account yeah. for some, uh, degree, oh. then, then, then these issues come into play. Some traits are entirely genetic, like right. eye color, uh, some traits are partly genetic, uh, like personality style, and there's a range between for lots of different traits about about how genetic they are and how environment environmental uh, they are, and it's impossible to to assess exactly. But that's what what, what twin studies are so effective at doing, and I write about this in the book about 50 years of twin study research over. Uh, uh, examining 18 million pairs of twins uh, around the world. And we can kind of of do a pretty decent analysis of how genetic we are. I mean, there's a, there's a question about the, the nature of nurture that your parents may raise you a certain way, but why do they do it? Is it uh, because of their genetics? So how do we assess what's what? Um, But we, I, I believe that humans are highly genetic beings that a lot of who and what we are is baked into us from day one. And there are beings in the world, species in the world that are, are much more kind of genetically determined than we are. I write about them in the book, like the Lombards, chameleons of Madagascar, uh, the mothers lay the eggs. And then before the eggs hatch, the entire species of adults die. And so these kids are hatched and like all you have is your instinctual knowledge. You don't have any parents. No one's telling you what to do. Everything needs to be baked in for you to survive. And so, and so it is humans. One of our great advantages um, is that um, we not only have these long gestation periods, but we have long periods of childhood uh, where we are learning very actively from our parents. As a matter of fact, our brains are far less formed at birth 
than our even our closest uh, relatives, other hominids. Um, and so there's there's always a trade off. And, and so and humans, we are partly genetic. And I think that the, the people who say, oh, we're just forget genetics. This is all about environment and 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 nurture. They're just wrong. Um, but if there are people who say that everything is genetics, that's also an overstatement. So uh, do you believe that given, as as we just said, that, um, you know, having different uh, people in a given country, having different levels of access to this technology because of their income level, I mean, it will be expensive at first, and, and the cutting edge versions of it will always be expensive, I guess, that as a matter of policy... Uh, access to this should be guaranteed to everyone by the government if they want to choose it, if they want to use these technologies? I guess it depends on what you mean by this. I certainly think that um, for the the basic assisted reproduction technologies, um, certainly egg and sperm freezing, IVF, uh, pre-implantation, genetic screening, at at very least for high-risk parents, I think they, I think it should be. I think it's it's highly discriminatory and unfair that wealthier people have more reproductive options than poorer people, and that's not the case in every country in, in the world. It's not the case in, as I mentioned, countries like uh, like Israel that have have well thought out uh, national health plans. And so I think that that um, that we really have a lot more thinking to do here about access. And about regulation, and the United Kingdom, for example, is much better. These issues are much better regulated in the UK through the um, Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority than they are here in the United States through our mismatch, uh, our mishmash of, of different regulatory or non-regulatory authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, even once if you give, you know, as I think you should give, give everyone the same access to technologies, uh, those that are deemed legal, at least uh, the um, you still are going to have people who don't want to use them. Now, you you I you seem to think you're not going to have many of those people. Ultimately, you write in the book, parents who conceive babies the old fashioned way will seem like today's anti-vaccination zealots. Well, first of all, there are a non-trivial number of anti-vaccination zealots. No, I, right. I think there'll be a lot, and, and we have them. Uh, it's just that every one of these uh, decisions now comes with a a, a benefit and a risk. Uh, the people who are getting vaccinated, yeah, there's some very, very small risk of, uh, of, of vaccination, but the benefit massively outweighs the risk. And so I, I think it's fine that there'll be parents um, who choose to not have children, to have children the old-fashioned way, I think it's fine and probably will always be fine. Um, but other parents are going to choose to do things differently. And I, and, and they'll, you know, there may be competitive pressures um, that, that drive one, one response or the other over time. And, and certainly we can imagine scenarios where children who are optimized or uh, selected for um, for certain outcomes, whether it's high IQ or being great at sprinting or whatever, maybe we'll have a leg up. Or it could be that this entire direction is just wrong and that it, it's hubristic of us to think we could challenge four billion years of uh, evolution and that we're smart enough to do it. And that we'll have kind of a, a whole generation of, of people who we will damage um, because we made these, these wrong decisions in the name of something that seemed seemed good at the time, and all of that leads us to to a level of at least of of caution, of wisdom, of making sure that we use our most cherished um, ethical frameworks to guide the application of these most powerful technologies. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we've been talking about uh, parents selecting traits in a kind of competitive context. I want my kid to be smarter than the next kid. I want them to be a better athlete, and parents certainly are like that. On the other hand, parents also say at least that they want their kids to be happy. And, and you healthy. can and, I think and, happy and healthy, and but so certainly I think healthy will be the, the key driver of everything, and everything else will follow healthy. But then happy is so there's different paths to happiness. One path 
is to say, which every parent should, I love you to their children. I love you for who you are. But there's another path. They, they seldom act, act like that, but they no, do say it. It's the nature of parenting. And they, uh, but there's another path that some kids are just born happier and with sunnier dispositions than other kids. And that's genetics. So, so I think that for all of these questions, they, they can often cut in, in, in both ways. Well, but you can also imagine, um, you know, kind of challenging some fundamental uh, aspects of human nature. I mean, one source of unhappiness is our tendency to grow dissatisfied with whatever it is we already have. Right now, that and also that's leads. Driver, that's a driver of our evolution. It's like I'm not staying in this tree. I'm gonna. I just think that that's that. that well, that, it's a it's a product. Restless. It's a product of our yeah. evolution. Yeah. I mean, animals that are happy after one meal and don't want any more food are, are not going to do well in the, in the marketplace. Right. So, right. so, you know, this is, I mean, I've written about Buddhism. This is fundamental to, to the Buddhist diagnosis of the human condition is that we're never happy with what we have. My point is, oh, you know, wait, wait, let me just pause you there because I'm, uh, I also in the grand tradition of um, Jewish atheists with Buddhist leanings, I'm very sympathetic to Buddhists and I'm very close with, uh, with, many of the leaders of the of the Tibetan authority and the Tibetan exile government. Um, but it's also true, unfortunately, that they, let's just use the Tibetans. They were these great, fierce warriors that everybody mm-hmm. was afraid of. And then they accepted and internalized this wonderful philosophy of Buddhism and, and peace and love and have been kind of on the defensive ever since. So all of these, these amazing mm-hmm. ideals exists within this rough context of this of this competitive world and that's that, that's the balance that we're all forced to, to find okay but but I mean one th- I, I guess I'm suggesting we don't talk as much as maybe we should about the possibility of emotional engineering I mean uh, yeah. leave aside Buddhism I mean as it happens the guy who popularized the idea of emotional intelligence Dan Goldman wrote the best-selling book. He's he is hardcore into, you know, he was one of the early American Buddhists. And, yeah. and because part of what both the, the Buddhist ideal and emotional intelligence are about is, is equanimity. Right. Yeah. An yeah. ability to absorb, not overreact on on yeah. Twitter to something somebody says and, and, and so on. Um, but anyway, so parents could, in principle, select for. Uh, you know, happiness in in the, in that sense. You know, yeah. equanimity. Um, beyond a point, I guess you you run into the to problem of uh, people who are too happy. You know, to, uh, too equanimous being subject to exploitation or something. You know, they're, yeah. They're, that, that, I mean, that's the point I made about the uh, about the Tibetans. And so, mm-hmm. certainly, like we live in a world with an equal a world where there's constantly new equilibriums. Are being are being found and and yes we could select everybody for happiness but we may discover that it's unhappiness that's an essential driver of our advancement as a species restlessness when we look at some of these people like the, the Elon Musk's or the what Bill Gates used to be or Steve Jobs for many of us we've been read read the the Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs, you think, geez, this is like a one, a really fucked up guy. Two, I'm kind of glad he was fucked up because it pushed him to do stuff that normal people would just wouldn't have done because of just they have the, the attributes of a normal, healthy person, which Steve Jobs clearly didn't. And so that's that's going to be a rough balance. And it's going to be hard for us to figure out on our own is what's the relationship uh, between desirable personal traits and necessary societal traits. And, and yes, it's easy to see of like everybody being happy. And then we, we become like a bunch of whatever koala bears just loafing around waiting for predators uh, to, to get us. But it could also be the case for people who are with the best of intentions eliminating single gene mutation disorders or um, preventing our children from being carriers of those mutations because we don't know what every mutation is doing. It's not that it's like one gene, one function. Our genes are doing tons of different things at the same time, most of which we don't even understand. So when we start 
mucking around, we can we might fix one thing and break another thing. So right now, uh, if a person uh, is, uh, is a recessive carrier of, uh, of the sickle cell mutation, they actually have increased resistance to malaria. But they also have an increased uh, possibility of passing on this terrible disease to their to their children. Mm-hmm. Do we want to eliminate that mutation um, to protect against the disease, or do we want to propagate it uh, to protect against other kinds of threats? And that's probably true for many thousands of different mutations that are deleterious and dangerous in one environment, but could even possibly be helpful in another one. We just don't know about that that second use. Hmm. I, I guess. Uh, well, two things. Um, one is one point I'm making about how some parents may look more for happiness. Others may may look for athletic prowess or artistic ability or intelligence. Is that it's misleading to think of it as a one dimensional stratification. I think I think the natural tendency is to think, well, some people use this. There will be the super smart class, and then the people who's who who are just as smart as humans are today. Um, it, it may be a more diverse ecosystem than that. It doesn't necessarily make it less creepy. I mean, stratification just seems kind of unsettling to begin with. So that's that's one thing I. I'd, I'd say, but but the other thing, uh, which may take us in a different direction, is uh, and Steve Jobs, I I, I really uh, I don't I don't think it it uh, there's any reason to be particularly happy that he had the career he had. I mean, obviously the computer revolution was coming. Had he never been born, fundamentally all these technologies would 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 be here. They might arrive more slowly. That would probably be a good thing because, so far as I can tell, the very rate of technological change is one of the things destabilizing um, America right now. So I'm not sure about, you know, uh, th- th- that's just my view. But one thing that carries us in, I, you know, I want to get into the international realm because th- that is a place where I really think the rate of this change, depending on how fast it unfolds, could be destabilizing. Like it's one thing to do the policy at the national level as challenging as that is. But it's another thing to be doing that policy in a context where people are saying, do you know what the Chinese are up to? Like, they're not putting these restraints on. They're not worried, you know, and whether or not that's true, well, there's a problem of finding out whether it's true. There's the fact that whether or not it's true, it could still have an unfortunate effect on our policy. So Mm -hmm. why why don't we start talking about the international picture, which I think is the... Uh, is in a way the most challenging and, and maybe unsettling. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, that's exactly right. I mean, we already have reports that are as yet unverified. The, the uh, U.S. Director of National Intelligence under Donald Trump um, had a piece in the Wall Street Journal where he talked about uh, China doing work on genetically engineered super soldiers. And I don't think there's that much they can meaningfully do right now, but I know that they're looking at it uh, the U.S. is looking at it. France is uh, is uh, is looking at, at it. Um, we look at Hu Jiankui, the highly unethical uh, Chinese scientist responsible for the world's first three CRISPR babies. Um, he was doing this in the context um, of Chinese nationalism, I and mean, he wrote that in 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 his various communications um, to local to Chinese authorities, and we're going to basically bring pride and glory to uh, to China. Now, these technologies, like every technologies, will be part of, uh, of competition between individuals, uh, as we've talked about, between companies and between countries and societies, and especially because uh, the broader suite, uh, suite of the tools uh, and capabilities of the genetic and genetics and biotech revolutions, those will be, the, the I think, the most important drivers of wealth and power in the 21st century. So it's inevitable um, that these technologies will get, uh, will intersect with um, competition between countries. And so there's a race uh, between that happening and between uh, those of us who care deeply about these issues and, and are trying to see possible futures, how do we come together to build frameworks that allow these these uh, technologies to be used beneficially for the for the common good, and that's that connects certainly to the work uh, that I'm doing 
as a member of the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing, uh, and to the work uh, that I'm doing with the organization that I and others uh, founded called One Shared World, which is trying to look at this, this broader global collective action problem. Because on every, it's the same thing with climate change and, and weapons of mass destruction, is that all of these incredibly good, these godlike capabilities that our species suddenly has, um, if we use that as fodder for um, zero-sum competition between our, our countries, we're just going to drive ourselves to extinction. So there's a race between all of these capabilities and technologies advancing and are developing a more meaningful framework in which to use them responsibly. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad to see you raising the book, uh, the the possibility of and, and probably and the necessity of probably, um, you know, an, some sort of international agreement. Uh, you even um, draw comparisons to nuclear nonproliferation treaty where, you know, the, the nations that had the capability uh, got other uh, other nations to sign on to this by sharing a certain amount of the technology with them or whatever. But but uh, the first thing you need there is the, a consensus among the nations, you know, that have the capability uh, in the current political environment that might seem challenging. Um, but there's also the question of, you know, uh, verification if you, you know, you, you, again, it's going to be very hard to make coherent national policy if we don't believe that nations we view as competitors are abiding by comparable rules. Uh, how hard is it to know um, what's actually going on uh, yeah. in in another nation? And is this going to call for you know changing uh, the the kind of uh, transparency we we demand of of nations? Yeah. So it, one, it's very difficult. Um, and two, we must change the way that we are thinking about um, how we're using these, these incredibly powerful technologies. Uh, right now, we're still in the middle of the COVID pandemic. And I've written a great deal about this on my jamiemetzel.com website about the possible origins of the pandemic. I've been saying since January 2020 that I think the most likely origin of COVID-19 is an accidental leak from the Wuhan Institute of, uh, of Virology in China. Um, and that means if that is the case, and then hopefully time will, time will tell, um, it's yet another example of China racing forward in, a, in some kind of, of you know, cutting edge uh, technology where China, for cultural and, and political and other reasons, is taking steps faster than maybe they're ready for, uh, and the, the rest of the world is probably is, is definitely uncomfortable with. And unless this isn't about how do we contain China, um, but it is about um, how can we, as humans sharing the same planet, build a better framework for managing our competition and, and addressing our, our, common, uh, our common challenges. And so mm. that's certainly one of the reasons why I, we created uh, One Shared World, because we have to think big picture about, well, how are we organized? How are we humans organized? And we've had big changes over the course of our history and how we do it. In 1648, at the end of the 30 Years' War, um, a small number of leaders in Europe um, created the modern notion of the nation state through the Peace of Westphalia. And that spread around the world. And then after two world wars, we realized that was unstable, that we needed an overlay of international institutions as, as thin as that is. And that's why we have the UN and the World Bank and, and other institutions. And hopefully now with the pandemic, we'll realize that in our, inter, our deeply interconnected world, we need a, a new framework that doesn't supplant, but um, uh, but adds to what we've had in, in the past, and that's a new framework based on a, a, dec a, re a, a deep recognition of the mutual responsibilities of our global interdependence. And, mm -hmm. and it seems kind of crazy and and idealistic, um, but otherwise, if we are in, in this world as as you Bob have have described, where there's a technology in one country um, tries to maximize the benefits 
against a competing country, which now will always happen. Um, if that's the only story, um, these, with these world-changing technologies and life-changing technologies, we're going to drive ourselves to extinction. I think there's a better path. Okay. And, and one more point along those lines. I mean, the, the funny thing is, the re- one reason it's so challenging is because people have certain kind of groupish tendencies, you know, sometimes called the psychology of tribalism, but, but these things have a genetic basis. It's, it seems to be yeah. part of human nature. It can yeah. warp the way we process information about another group. You can imagine changing that through genetic engineering, but again, you, you wouldn't want to even do that if you were worried that you would then be, uh, you might be exploited by people who weren't who weren't. And, and, and we don't have to. I mean, Yuval Noah Harari is probably the most eloquent on this thing. Like you can get, you know, our genetics has primed us for living in these these small groups of roving nomads that our ancestors lived in for kind of, for most of our of our history. Um, but then it was cultural inheritance, cultural evolution that went from that to the village, to the city, to the, to the country. So, yes, we have this, this us and them. But if the us can go from a, tiny, a relatively tiny group of roving nomads to all of these totally diverse people living in the same country of, you know, of hundreds of millions or you know, more than a billion people, it's not such a huge cultural jump to say, and I also have something in common um, with everybody on Earth and and the planet. So I don't think we need. Yeah, sure, and, and, and sure, and moreover, uh, there is a non-zero sum logic that, in principle, should draw us into connection with them. But right. there is the unfortunate fact that traditionally the most galvanizing kind of non-zero sum logic say within a nation has been opposition to another group of people a zero sum game and and evolution seems to have engineered us to respond more readily to threats that consist of other human beings than to more abstract thre- threats like climate change and and so on and so and that's, so that's like, I don't want to sound like uh, Donald Trump in the um in the debates versus Hillary Clinton but Martians if you're listening, make sure. yourself known so that we can all come together and recognize that we're all just one. That would be great. So final question is um, what you, your guess on time frame. Tell us tell us where you think what will be possible in 10 or 15 years that will yeah. make these kinds of questions really urgent. Yeah. So. Uh, in 10 years, I just think our understand, I know uh, that our understanding of human genetics in the context of human systems biology will be much, much greater. And that is going to super empower our process of selecting from among pre-implanted embryos. And I think that I, I'm extremely confident that that's going to happen within uh, 10 or 15 years, if not before. We will also uh, continue to race forward on the issue of uh, uh, genome editing. And I do think that we will be making very small and it's not going to be large numbers, even though it will be possible to do large numbers of edits, small edits initially to reduce serious risks. I also think that we're going to be doing a lot more uh, on the editing of uh, sperm and egg precursor cells, because that's going to allow us to have a level of iteration and experimentation um, that will either not be technologically possible or ethically comfortable, uh, which would be doing the exact same thing with with uh, pre-implanted embryos. Um, so I think those are are some of the of the big drivers. But then the essential point, though, is that our science is advancing exponentially uh, and. And when we think of rates of change, our minds, our, our naturally linearly, linear minds um, tend to be conservative because we're just not, we're not, we don't construct the world around, around us unless we force ourselves to do imagining futures that are changing at a faster rate than our experience of change in, in the past. And that, that's why I always say that everybody, um, we need to all start thinking like science fiction writers um, because 
our future is going to feel like science fiction, but we also need to recognize that our future today feels like science fiction compared to our ancestors. Even, even Jules Verne kind of imagining traveling to the moon. It was like, you have a big gun and pointed it to the moon. And that was brilliant in his, in his time. The idea that we're a, a space faring species. I mean, imagine our ancestors, you know, wandering around the, the savannas of Africa. I mean, it's just, it's unimaginable. So we all need to be futurists. We all need to be, to think like, uh, like uh, science fiction writers and we all need to recognize that we have a role to play. The future isn't, isn't set. Um, everybody has a role to play in making sure that we're building a future that we're all going to be comfortable with. Okay, quick actual final question. This just occurred to me. Yeah. Just, just to go back to this one point. Will the kind of international agreement you think is necessary call for a new degree of transparency um, in, in terms of uh, the extent to which countries like us and China agree that, you know, international inspectors can look here or there, can look in any it college, must. bio yeah, it, lab, whatever. It must. I mean, that's what we're finding in now with uh, with the COVID-19 outbreak. I mean, there were all these things that were happening. Uh, the World Health Organization had no independent means of establishing its own surveillance. China was giving it wrong information. Uh, it wasn't able to send its inspectors for nearly a month. And now we have well more than a million people dead, $82 trillion over five years of, of economic damage, a world which is just organized around sovereign states that can do anything that they want, including threaten the, the, the well-being of everyone on earth. It's just not a sustainable world. So we must... Um, again, not get rid of our states, but recognize that we that our common needs as humans must be addressed, and we need frameworks to help us do that. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Jamie. Um, again, the book is Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. And I guess people can find your stuff at jamiemetzel.com, it sounds like. Yeah, jamiemetzel.com. There's also a, a Hacking Darwin uh, site hackingdarwin.com where people can uh, leave comments, debate with uh, with each other. And then the reason I've written the book um, is to bring people into the conversation. So there's a, a reader's guide with all kinds of questions people can ask each other and, and ask their families. There's a political guide of questions you can ask and, and I hope sure it will ask uh, political leaders, but this isn't we all have to play a role in, in building this future. This isn't the kind of thing where we can kind of step back and, and let experts do it. We all need to be part of this. And that's why Hacking Down, I've written it kind of almost like a book you can take to the beach, uh, written to be enjoyable, because this is a conversation for all of us. Okay. Thanks very much. My pleasure, Bob.